You know, I don't know about you, but I've found that <clears throat> experientially, uh, doubts have been a, a somewhat regular part of my Christian life. I don't think I'm alone in that. And, you know, I have a firm belief that, you know, one of the, the goals and the duties of Christian discipleship is to chase those doubts down. And after all, the Christian faith is a, a rational faith. Um, it can still be rattling, though, when it does happen. I can still remember, um, well, I'm 38 now. I've got three kids, three girls, Piper, Lucy, and Kate. I'm a, I'm a teacher, and um, I work at a boarding school out in Port Hope. But at this one time in my life, I had young kids. I worked at a school in Toronto. I would take the bus to work most mornings. <clears throat> and when I was disciplined, I would do my Bible reading uh, in the morning on, on the bus. And I can so vividly remember reading a passage of scripture I'd, I'd read multiple times before, um, where the blessings and the cursings, curses of the Mosaic Covenant were, were talked about. And it just hit me in a way uh, that it had never hit before. I mean, I was a father, and I started to realize that some of these judgments that are talked about, I mean, they're, they're hitting families. They're not just hitting individuals. They're hitting families. And I, I can still remember feeling this doubt starting to gnaw away at a, a deep place in my soul. Um, it was terrifying. I could sort of feel the ground start to shift beneath my feet. Uh, but by God's grace, it was something I didn't ignore. Um, I talked to people in this church that I respect and look up to. I, I emailed people and professors I'd never met, always asking that question, how do we make sense of God's justice? Not just broadly, but in particular ways. And I don't know if you've noticed, but we've been in the Minor Prophets for a while now, and divine judgment is a huge theme in all of them, and it's a huge theme in Zephaniah as well. I know I haven't read the, the scripture text. I will. I haven't forgotten about it. So pay attention this morning, because we're going to explore the theme of judgment, but we're also going to look for clues as to how this makes sense. Now, the key thing to realize is that everyone has doubts regardless of worldview. It's not just Christians that may have doubts from time to time. Everyone does. Every worldview has doubts. There's a real problem for secular Western people. There's a problem of personal identity. How do we determine who we are? I mean, our culture is in chaos over this, people trying to discover who they are. And I want to show how Zephaniah answers that question, helps to solve and address that problem. The key idea for today's message, if you just kind of get this one idea, the whole thing will kind of fit together is this. We need courage and a new identity as we live in a world facing judgment. So let's turn to our text today, Zephaniah 3. If you have a Bible, please turn with me there. And we will read sections from this. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. But the unjust know no shame. I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. 
I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate, without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. From the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. And then moving down to verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. <clears throat> I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, at that time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Gracious God, we ask again for your mercy upon the preaching of your word. Father, I pray that you would encourage and exhort us and draw us closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Zephaniah has royal blood, it seems. His great-grandfather was Hezekiah, the great Jewish king. And it seems that Zephaniah is from a faithful family. We see a clue here with his name. Zephaniah's name means Yahweh has hidden. This is significant because Zephaniah is born, it seems, during the terrible reign of the king Manasseh. He's born during a very difficult and faithless time in Israel's history. The text, interestingly, goes on to say that he's a son of Cushi, which connects him with Cush. Cush was the name of ancient Ethiopia, where modern Sudan is. Zephaniah has African blood, most likely. Now, what is this all about? Why is this being talked about? Why are we listening to this voice thousands of years later? Well, it's because judgment is coming. Judgment is coming on Judah and surrounding nations. And this son of Cush, who walked in royal circles, most likely, who was speaking words of address and condemnation to the Jewish elites of his day, He's speaking words of judgment on Judah. He's speaking words of judgment on surrounding nations and, in fact, the whole world. And in chapter 3, what we're reading, what we read this morning, there's light at the end of the tunnel, there is salvation, and there is hope. 
If our main idea is we need courage and a new identity as we live in a world-facing judgment, let's start with the world-facing judgment. There are hard sayings in this, in this book. But the book opens, it's important to note, with the word of the Lord. We see this in chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah. This word is authoritative. It requires our attention and obedience. I don't know if you're like me, but I've been glued to the TV watching what has been unfolding in Afghanistan. 20 years of military operations, trillions spent, thousands maimed and dead, and seemingly overnight Afghanistan has reverted to the terrible rule of the Taliban. The scenes are, are horrifying. The, the desperation of the people is palpable. And I had this eerie feeling as I was watching that, reading Zephaniah, and I'm not making a, even a comparison about judgment, but just the, the feeling of dread with the people. In Zephaniah and Judah, God's covenant people is to be taken over by another power. And Zephaniah is predicting that this new power, Babylon, will make Judah desolate. And, and why is this? There are many reasons for this. We're going to explore them in a bit, but the people of God, always surrounded by foreign powers, always on her heels defensively, has become an oppressor. We see this in chapter 3, verses 1 to 2, where Zephaniah says this, Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. But God pivots in this book. Zephaniah pivots in this book. And we see that the scope of judgment is to be expanded, that the world itself is to be the subject of God's cosmic judgment. We see God's wrath poured out on all the rebellious of the earth. Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 15 to 17 says this, A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. This is a view that the New Testament picks up on. The Apostle Peter probably had Zephaniah and other texts in mind when he said this in 2 Peter 3, verses 10 to 12. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies melt as they burn? This day of the Lord language used here and elsewhere in Scripture, it refers to God's final and decisive move to execute justice, to establish right order in the world. What will happen on that final day of judgment? Scripture says that God will crush the forehead of all oppressors. He'll take their power away and he will exercise dominion over the entire world. 
What's unique here about Zephaniah is the cosmic, the universal scope of the judgment that is being talked about here. There is language from Genesis, the first book of the Bible. It's it's picked up by Zephaniah. Zephaniah is thinking about this. God is referencing the book of Genesis. Listen to chapter 1, verse 2. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. That language, from the face of the earth, that's using flood language from the days of Noah, where God judged the world. Listen to chapter 1, verse 3. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. If you go back to Genesis 1, one of the things that you'll find is that God's creation is laid out in an orderly sequence. And here, Zephaniah reverses it. And it seems what God is communicating is that this coming universal judgment will be a sort of decreation that that affects and hits everything. In chapter 2, the Philistines are addressed. They lived on the coast to the west of Israel. They were a powerful nation. And we know this because during Zephaniah's time, Egypt took over 29 years to besiege the city of Ashdod. 29 years. Here in chapter 2, Ashdod will fall by noon in one day. We already heard about Assyria and Nineveh and other sermons on the minor prophets, and here we go again. In Zephaniah 2.13, God is going to stretch out his hand against them. Assyria was the most powerful empire in the world at the time of this writing. It controlled the Near East for hundreds of years. In 723 BC, they conquered the northern kingdom of Israel's capital, Samaria, sending the people of the northern kingdom of Israel into exile. I mean, I don't know if you've seen any of the Planet of the Apes films, but in a few of them, humans have been driven out of cities, and these cities have been conquered by apes. And I just remember this one spooky scene of this major city, this U.S. city, overgrown with vegetation and animals and and no people. That's the imagery here in chapter 2, verses 13 to 14. Animals have replaced people as inhabitants. Their buildings, their architectural wonders lay in in ruins. Notice in 2.15, talking about Nineveh, the capital, what a desolation she has become. Notice the tense here. What a desolation she has become. Zephaniah is so confident that this is going to happen that he actually says it in the present tense. And happen it does. A new superpower, the Babylonians, emerge on the scene, conquer Nineveh in 612 BC. Really what Zephaniah is driving at here is that the countries to the north and the south and the east and west, all the countries that surround Judah have oppressed her in the world, will face judgment that the cry of a dispossessed, powerless people will not go on forever, that God will set the world to rights, that the cry of the people in Kabul will not go on forever, but will be addressed on that last day. And this judgment on these surrounding countries, this is a foretaste for Zephaniah of what will come in the end in the final judgment. In light of all this, though, we've got to ask ourselves, well, why the judgment in the first place? What clues does Zephaniah give us to why this is coming? We turn to Zephaniah chapter 
1, verses 4 to 6, we see this. Amongst other things, the people of God have turned to the worship of false gods. They're worshiping Baal. They're worshiping the stars as gods. They're worshiping creation. The people of God that had the revelation of God that were to be a light to the nations are now worshiping false gods instead of proclaiming the true God to the nations. We have those that are worshiping Yahweh, but they're hedging their bets. They're worshiping other gods as well. Notice the reference to Milcom in chapter 1, verse 5. This is probably a reference to the god Molech, where service to Molech, religious service to Molech, frequently involved the sacrifice of children. This is stark rebellion. This is scandalous. But the reason for judgment, it it goes beyond that. If we look at Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 12, At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. We've got this language here of God going through Jerusalem. He's hunting down the complacent who say God won't do anything good. He won't do anything bad. In fact, you know what? God's just not going to do anything at all. Zephaniah says that God's people have failed to seek, they failed to inquire, they don't repent, they don't ask for help, they don't worship, they just live for themselves, and they're living life without any reference to the God who led them out of Egypt into the promised land. But at its heart, what unites the sins of Judah, Nineveh, Ashdod, the world, is not just oppression, and that is certainly there, but it's also pride. In Zephaniah 2.3, we see this. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just command. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. We see that to seek the Lord is really the determination here to live with righteousness and godliness and humility before God. For Zephaniah, it's the humble who seek after holiness, who try to pattern their lives after God's standards because they have the humility to recognize that they can't live life without reference to God. They can't figure it all out. They're not wise enough. They're not strong enough. They need God, and they need his word. Now, I'm not sure how you've been processing this text, but I mean, I think for many in our culture, this just seems impossible to believe. I mean, who believes in a God of judgment anymore? Isn't this just an antiquated relic of our past? Is this something to just move on and push through? I mean, consider this. Zephaniah says that the fire of his jealousy will consume the ungodly. Zephaniah goes so far as to say that the ungodly are a sacrifice ready to be consumed. But is this unreasonable? If you struggle with the idea of divine judgment, or if you've ever struggled, or if you know someone who does, consider this. Don't things make you angry? Think about the anger that you and I have felt when we've watched the news. We've seen what the Taliban is doing in Afghanistan and moreover what they're going to do once Western military forces leave Afghanistan totally. In scripture, we we see God's wrath. We see anger and a commitment to justice. The truth is we also see those things in us as well, pale as they are. 
pale in comparison as they are. In our own way, we get angry at injustice. It just pales in comparison to the white-hot anger that we see in Zephaniah. Rebecca McLaughlin says that in thinking about this, we should imagine that God's kind of love-motivated anger is so deeply entrenched in his heart that our own commitment to justice is like a drop in the ocean. It's like the justice of a child dressing up in a police outfit compared with that of a high court judge. He feels that anger more deeply than we do. And that's what's being communicated in this text where he sees it for the evil that he is. And he's watching it now while we turn away. Further than this, if you're offended by all this talk of divine judgment, we've got to consider where we live, where we're from. We live in the West. Many of you were born and raised here. Tim Keller makes the point that those who find the Christian teaching about divine judgment offensive should really consider their own cultural location. In the West, we have a hard time with judgment and hell, but we love the biblical teaching about forgiveness and turning the other cheek. But in other cultures in the world today, it's the opposite. Turning the other cheek makes no sense to them. It offends their basic instincts about what's right. But God's wrath and judgment, the reality spoken of in this text, it makes perfect sense to them. So some cultures are repulsed by aspects of Christianity that Western people enjoy, but are attracted by aspects that secular Westerners can't stand, like maybe the people that you work with. And here's the thing. If Christianity really is the transcultural truth about God, where it's not just the truth about God that's enmeshed in one people group, but if it really applies to all people everywhere, Tim Keller points out that this is exactly what we should expect to find. We should expect Christianity and the message of Zephaniah in particular to contradict and offend every human culture at some point. I don't know if you know this, but the 20th century was the most violent century that the world has ever seen. And the 21st is ramping up to be just as bad. There's in genocide in World War II, in Rwanda, in the killing fields of Cambodia, and in many other places. We can all agree that if God is good, that he wants this to stop, that he wants to get rid of this. Certainly God will judge the perpetrators of genocide, will he not? But scripture and Zephaniah show us that he takes sin a lot more seriously than we do. We want to get rid of the Taliban. Jesus wants to get rid of rage. We want boundaries on a wildfire while Jesus wants to cut off the spark at the beginning. And the reality is that spark is in all of us, not just corrupt dictators or Taliban soldiers. We're scandalized by adultery and Jesus wants to deal with our lust. We're scandalized by murder. Jesus wants to cut out all of our unrighteous anger. And it's not just that. It's God dishonoring greed. It's community and relationship destroying gossip. And it goes on and on. It's not just what you see on CNN and CBC in the evening. The scope of God's care and judgment is so much broader and so much deeper. And this is something that the Russian writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn recognized he was a writer who was unjustly imprisoned 
in the Soviet Union. He was wasting away in a prison camp, and he wrote this. Gradually, it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, not between classes, not between political parties either, but right through every human heart. But why can't God ignore this? I mean, are these instincts, are Zephaniah's instincts here a little overkill? It's not. God judges sin because he loves the world. God is in the process of making a new creation. We're in the middle of a story that God has written and is writing. We know the ending. And we're in the fourth or fifth act right now. We're trying to see how things play out. But we know how the book ends. And when the book ends, before another book starts, God's going to make a new creation, a world where there's no suffering and death, where Jesus is at the center. He's worshipped and glorified. If God covered over sin and ignored it, he'd be like a contractor who came in to renovate a house, and instead of dealing with the mold, he just painted over it. A contractor who, instead of dealing with leaks, ignores them. And instead of telling the owner about a bad foundation, just builds on top of it. And what would happen to that world? What would happen to that home? Well, eventually the mold will work through the paint. The leaks will spread. The foundation will destroy the house. What would we say? We'd say, this guy's a fraud. He's reckless. And he doesn't care about the people who live there. So here's the thing. When Jesus Christ fixes the house, he will fix and judge everything. He will not jeopardize his new creation by ignoring sin because he loves himself and he loves the people who will live there. He will judge because he is good and he is seriously committed to this new creation. But here's the thing. If we're honest and we truly face the truth about ourselves... If you agree with Solzhenitsyn that the line of good and evil isn't out there in the world or in other people, but right through every human heart, right through your heart, that leaves us with a real problem. There's an extent to which all of our relationships, Rebecca McLaughlin points this out, that all our relationships hinge to some extent on hiding. In the past five years, celebrity after celebrity has been exposed for abominable behavior. Andy Crouch, a writer for Christianity Today, in a moment of real vulnerability, said this. If you knew the full condition of my heart, my fantasies, my grievances, my anxieties, my darkest solitary thoughts, you would declare me a danger to myself and others. I cannot be entrusted with power by myself, certainly not with celebrity, and neither can you. Rebecca McLaughlin was writing about this in, in her book. And she says this, I mean, think about your thought life. Think about all the people you'll talk today at church. What if they could read a transcript of your thought life, everything for the past 14 days? Would you let them see it? She goes on to write about the time that she got her hair cut, and she noticed that the stylist who was cutting her hair had a tattoo on her right arm, and it read this, if you can't handle my worst, you don't deserve my best. And those words, they stuck in her mind. Ultimately, they express a desire to be known and loved. That's what we want. We want to be fully known and fully loved. But the thing is, McLaughlin points out, when we invite people in, we kind of navigate a minefield. If we dig in some places in your heart, you're going to find rich soil that will help others get to know you better. 
and perhaps even love you more, but scratch in other places and people are going to lose a positive view of who you are. McLaughlin says, we all manage our own self-disclosure in varying degrees and ways. We find ourselves making a choice. And this is the problem in the West today. You've got to pick. Are you known or are you loved? This question of being known or being loved is a dilemma that faces everyone. And if the key idea for today's message is we need courage and a new identity as we live in a world facing judgment, this brings us to looking at questions of identity. Who are you? Who are you really? I work with high school kids. This is like, this is all day, every day. People try on identities like hats. I had one friend uh, growing up who, I kid you not, like for two months he was a cowboy. For two months he found like his dad's old hippie clothes. He dressed like a hippie for two months. Just in high school, just every two months he would just change identities. According to Tim Keller, there's three options for us to find our identity. We can look outward. Traditional cultures look to their communities. They look to their responsibilities to define who they are. But this can be crippling because when we do that, we're basing our identities on achievements that may never come or actually may get taken away from us. The goals that you set, you may never accomplish. The relationships, the family relationships that are close to you, well, they'll eventually die or you may lose the relationship. And if that's how you construct your identity, you risk losing your very self. So what's another option? Well, in, our, in Western culture, we can look inward. This is for whom largely, for whom God isn't a concern. There's no cosmic order. We look within for all of our answers. And then we take pictures of it on Instagram and show it to everyone. There's a problem here too. If we look within, if we're honest, if you're honest, it's a mess on the inside. We're a jumble of different desires. And these desires contradict each other. Which ones do you pick and for how long? How long do you try them on for? These desires are also elusive. They change all the time. The desire that you had three years ago, think of who you were seven years ago. I think about who I was in high school and it's horrifying. Things change, people change. And there's also something narcissistic about always looking within. Who wants to be around a person who's only concerned about their own self-interest? No one does. But there's another option. We can look upward. What if we were created by a personal God who gives us a mission and a calling? And if that's true, what matters is not primarily what society says about you, even if it is important, or even what you think of yourself, even though that's important, what truly matters, what ultimately matters, is what God thinks of you. And that's what the latter part of Zephaniah 3 is all about. Zephaniah is clear that a refuge can be found on this coming day of judgment. The first part of the sermon, it hits heavy, because Zephaniah hits heavy. But look at chapter 3, verses 9 to 10. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples <coughs> to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. This African Jew is looking at Cush and he's saying, they're going to come. Everyone will come 
From all over the world, people will come and God will change the speech of the peoples because his desire is to transform the nations into pure worshipers. That's what he wants. C.S. Lewis was right when he said, if there is a door in hell, it's locked on the inside. God wants to be worshipped. He wants to save. He desires to forgive. But I want to focus on Zephaniah 3.17, which says this, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. This is really the only text in the Bible where God breaks out in loud singing. We see a parallel text in Isaiah 65, verses 17 to 19. We see this. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered, nor come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress." For Isaiah, this divine joy is linked to the new creation. And when we come to the New Testament, when the apostles and Jesus are reflecting upon what was written in the prophets, we see the new creation beginning with Christ's first coming, and it culminates with the second coming. The reality expressed in Isaiah, expressed in Zephaniah 3, is here now, it's here today, and it's here this morning as we worship. And what Zephaniah is writing about here. I'll say this, Zephaniah 3.17, it's been called the John 3.16 of the Old Testament, and for good reason. I have a paraphrase here, it's a little corny, but I think it expresses, I think, the, the heart of what's going on. This is from Sam Storms, theologian Th Sam Storms. He says this, the Lord your God is with you all the time. He is a powerful and a mighty warrior who saves you. When he thinks of you, he exalts in festive pleasure and with great delight. At other times, he becomes quiet as he reflects on his deep affection for you. He celebrates who you are with a joyful singing. Have you ever thought that God forgives you begrudgingly just because he has to? That at rock bottom, he's just angry with you all the time. In Luke 12, 32, Jesus said to the disciples, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That text in Zephaniah 3.17 is about who God is. It's about the sort of heart God has. If you belong to Jesus, if you trust the gospel, he delights to save you. He forgives you, but he delights in you as he forgives you. This text speaks of God rejoicing over his people with joy and gladness. And this is remarkable, for those terms are used elsewhere in Scripture. They're used when David comes home from striking down the Philistines. The woman came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing with tambourines and sounds of joy. That's what, God, that's what it's like when God sings over you and rejoices over you. In 1 Kings chapter 1, Solomon is anointed as king, and the people were so excited, it says that the rejoicing was so great that the earth was split by their noise. That's the sound that God makes. That's what it's like when he rejoices over you. My prayer for you is to feel the wonder of this today and this week. But some of us can still get tripped up over this. Sam Storms points out, some of you may think, not me. You don't know what I've done in the shadows. My sin is too great. God couldn't rejoice over me. 
Here's what Zephaniah says. God knows what you've done, and he says here, if you've trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, the Lord has taken away his judgments against you. Look at chapter 3, verse 15. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. He rejoices over you even though you've sinned. For some of you, God feels far away this morning. You feel small. You feel as if you're a nobody. Look at chapter 3, verse 15. The king of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. And again in chapter 3, verse 17. The Lord is in your midst. God is not far from you this morning. He is there. He's here now. And he's rejoicing over you. Some of you are dominated by shame. You've been belittled. You've been manipulated. You've been slandered. And this song that I'm talking about, that Zephaniah is speaking about in chapter 3, you can't hear it. But consider Jesus. Unbelievable shame was thrown on his back. He was slandered, belittled, even from the people in his hometown of Nazareth. It is for this reason that Hebrew says, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus knows who you are, what you deal with, what you live with, and he feels it all with you, And his word for you this morning from Zephaniah 3.19 is this, I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all of the earth. Early in Jesus' ministry, we see him baptized by John the Baptist. And when Jesus is baptized, the gospel writer Mark says this, that a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We know that that's how the father feels about his son. But if you belong to Jesus, that's how he feels about you too. And I know this because of the doctrine of adoption or or sonship, where we have the right and privilege and authority to become the children of God. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 to 2 puts doctrinal flesh on the skeleton we find here in Zephaniah. It says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. In the ancient world, adoption was normally just for the very wealthy who were childless. And it wasn't for infants. It was for young adults who had already shown themselves to be worthy, who could represent the family well. J.I. Packer says this. Sam Storms quoting J.I. Packer says this. In this case, however, God adopts us out of free love, not because our character and record show us worthy to bear his name, but despite the fact that they show the very opposite. We are not fit for a place in God's family. The idea of his loving and exalting us sinners as he loves and has exalted the Lord Jesus sounds ludicrous and wild, yet that and nothing less than that is what our adoption means. And then he says this, God receives us as sons, and he loves us with the same steadfast affection with which he eternally loves his beloved only begotten. There are no distinctions of affections in the divine family. We are all loved just as fully as Jesus is loved. This and nothing less than this is what adoption means. No wonder that John cries, Behold what manner of love 
when once you understand adoption, your heart will cry the same. Christian, if you belong to Jesus, that is your true identity. It's fixed. It's stable. And even if one month you want to dress like a hippie and then the next month dress like a cowboy, that will carry you through a chaotic world. So who are you? In answering this, many of you need to stop looking out and stop looking within and you need to look up. And if you come to Jesus and you put your faith in him, you will see the smiling face of a father and realize that you are a beloved son and a beloved daughter. If our main idea has been we need courage and a new identity as we live in a world-facing judgment, I want to quickly close now with a focus on courage. Zephaniah 3.16 says this. On that day... It shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. A lot has gone on in Zephaniah, and while there's been a lot of hope, there's also judgment. God knows our feeble frame. He actually references here a physical experience of anxiety, of hands trembling and shaking. God says, Fear not. And he says, Fear not because the Lord is in your midst. But if you've been paying attention, I mean, how is that encouraging? If in chapters 1 and 2 and parts of 3, the Lord is a God of judgment and fire. We've read about how the cup of God's wrath is served up to whole nations whose sinful abuses, child sacrifices, their indifference of God have incurred the Lord's judgment. It sounds terrifying to have the Lord in your midst. but I want you to move thousands of years into the future. A Jewish man who called himself the Messiah got on his knees the night before he was crucified. He knelt on the ground and he prayed to his father and he begged that this cup would pass him by. And while our attention may just flit over those words, the earliest Jewish readers of the Gospels knew exactly what was being talked about because they had read Zephaniah. Jesus faced drinking down the righteous anger and judgment of God against sin on an epic scale, and he took it all in himself. God's anger at the Taliban. God's rage at the slave trade. God's anger at abuse and murder and calloused indifference were all poured out on Jesus on the cross. That's what he dreaded, not the nails in his hands. And it's because Jesus paid the penalty, it's because he offered himself as a sacrifice that we have the privilege to become sons of God. So submit to him this morning. Turn from your sins and put your wholehearted confidence in Jesus. But I also want to encourage you to be courageous and stay the course this morning as we close. And I was listening to a podcast the other day about, you know, someone who I know who's since left the faith, a leader in a Christian church, and one of the sticking points for him was what we're talking about, was divine judgment. And he referenced that. And it kind of stuck in my craw, but I've gone through this. And just this, this data and reading Tim Keller and Rebecca McLaughlin, and, and this is what stood out to me. When we minimize the divine judgment 
We dishonor Jesus because we diminish the reality of what he went through on our behalf. And what he went through on our behalf was drinking the cup of wrath. And while there definitely may be more to what Jesus has done on our behalf, it is never less than that. So stay the course and be courageous. Commit yourself not just to Christ, but to faithful teaching about Christ. If you have doubts, it's normal. There's no need to hide. Ask the Lord for wisdom. Reach out in community. God is faithful. He's faithful. Fear not. And now let's sing. We have a God who promises to sing over those he saves. And that joy-filled melody is to be matched line by line by the rejoicing of his bride and his goodness. Have you been forgiven? Have you been adopted as a son or daughter? Then sing. And given how loudly we've learned that God sings over us, let's bless him by singing loudly ourselves. Please pray with me.